Morning, everybody. That good, huh? That was so bad. A week from now, come at 10 o'clock instead and continue that until you learn how to listen early in the morning. Um, turn in your Bibles, please. 1 Corinthians 11. We're continuing our series in through the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, can I get somebody to um, grab some Bibles and help pass them out? Electric guitar guy? Could you help me grab some Bibles? Sweet. Sweet. If you need, um, you're going to need a Bible this morning. Uh, I say it often, but it's really true. Um, Bible is to sermon what scuba gear is to deep sea diving. You need this to survive the next 40 minutes. And as you're turning there, let me just speak a word of confession. This is the most difficult sermon that I have ever preached. This may be the most difficult sermon that you have ever listened to. It is not that the passage is particularly difficult or that the the concepts are really obscure. The sermon is going to discuss love and heaven and joy and controversy and math and the transformers and human sexuality. I did not say it was going to be a boring sermon. Let me assure you, it has certainly grabbed my full attention but it's particularly difficult because, because the Bible's assertions about the way that the world works and what the Bible says is true about the way our lives work and the way our lives are to be lived just could not sound more strange to the way our world currently tells us. So would you please give me some grace this morning? I don't, I don't know what you expect when you hear a sermon I always, um, this is what I normally hear. People come up to me after I preach and like, I just love our teaching team here at Crossroads. Rod is like the aggressive, in-your-face, intense guy. And Neil is so smart. And my kids love you. Okay. So I... I shared that with Dr. Stoll, who's like my um, spiritual hero, and he says, it's worse when they say, my mom loves you. <laughs> Good. But here's what I'm saying. Hey, kids, kids, come, come with me today. Parents, you're going to need to put your thinking caps on. Kids, you're going to have to sit down in your thinking chairs and think, 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 okay? We're going to start with the text. We're going to investigate what the text says and get some clarity. And my intention is we're going to unpack some of Paul's theology and we're going to start moving back and forth. Text, implication and application, back and forth. I don't have like a real super clear three easy points, easy to swallow thing. It's a, it's a passage. You're going to hear it in a second. Let's get to it. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. This is 1 Corinthians 11. We're going to start in verse 2. Our sermon will be the entire chapter, but I'll begin by reading through verse 16. This is God's word to us this morning. Now, Paul says, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is written, Oh, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. 
For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But a woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Let me pray for us. <laughs> Our only, only wise God, we have just sung that we are waiting here for you. And we meant it. Where else can we go? Only you have the words of life. God, but we are not relying on our personal goosebump sense of whether or not you are here. You promised you'd be here. We believe you. And as your word is open to us, open, like the psalmist said, open my eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. Open our eyes, God. Open our hearts. May we behold our Savior this morning. Would you change our minds and change our lives by the gospel of Jesus Christ? That is the power of God to those who believe. It's power that we desperately need this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. All right, what's going on here? What is going on here? What is this head covering thing? Why is Paul so upset about it? Let's begin with a little cultural background, okay? I'm going to start with kind of what Bible commentators um, do when they explain what's going on. They have kind of two views of what's talked about here. What's going on? What is this head covering? Option number one is its hair, okay? I found one preacher who called this the bun view. The bun view. This makes Paul's concern here Apparently, the Corinthian women were using their hairstyles to communicate a message that contradicted the gospel, it seems. In Jewish and Greek cultures, it seemed like disheveled hair was a sign that someone was set apart from the community, not a part of the community. Just about the only Old Testament occurrence of a woman loosening her hair is found in Numbers 5.18, which is during an investigation for adultery. Um... Scholars tell us that shaved hair in that culture indicated non-personhood. It was a hairstyle only chosen by slaves or prostitutes. So the difficulty with that sort of view, if it's just hair, the difficulty comes then, well then what about a man? I mean, just following Paul's logic, if that were true, then the most glorifying option for a guy is the balding option. Option number two. Option number two is it's a shawl. 
It's a shawl. And this view stems from other biblical examples um, of covering. The angels in Isaiah 6, it says that when they saw God, they covered their, their feet and their eyes. They covered, they, they, with their wings, they covered. Um, Haman in Esther 6, um, when he was exposed for the sham he was, it says he covered his head in shame. That doesn't seem to, he didn't grow hair quickly. He seemed to cover his, it's not a, a Muslim veil, it's some sort of shawl. Well, here's the great principle. Here's a great principle for biblical interpretation. If you take notes, I'd like you to write this down. It's an old principle. The person who said it best, I think, is Alistair Begg, who said, the main things are the plain things. And the plain things are the main things. Okay? Let me say it again. The main things are the plain things. And the plain things are the main things. We have to go with what's obvious. We have to start there. We can't miss the obvious stuff because we have some questions around the corners. Okay? Paul's plain point is this. Women and men ought to be easily distinguished from one another. That's the point. They ought to be easily distinguished from one another. There is God has given us the genders. And we should... When we mask them, when we hide them, we are not reflecting his created good. So what's the application for us? Is this, a, is this a call to a shawl? Is this long hair or no prayer? That is silly. If we were to adopt old cultural indicators for gender, we would miss the principle behind this. Okay, We live in a world with cultural indicators. We live in a world with cultural indicators, and we need to skillfully navigate the culture God has put us in. Let me give you an example, relationship between cultural indicators and respect. Okay, so if you're a guy and you live in cowboy culture, cowboy culture, all right? Um, When you want to show respect to a young lady, you take your hat off. Howdy, ma'am. You take your hat off to show respect for a lady. You probably knew this if you wore a hat to dinner when your grandma was serving food. She's like, take your hat off, right? Be respectful, take your hat off. However, if you were a Jewish man living in a Jewish culture starting in about the fourth century, if you wanted to show respect, you would cover your head. You would cover your head. See how showing respect had the exact opposite cowboy culture, 4th century Jewish culture, different ways of showing respect. Same thing, uh, let's say you're over to someone's house to eat some food. And they give you, it's a piece of pie, right? And should you eat the whole pie if you want to be gracious to your host? In Michigan, yes. (laughs) You should eat the whole pie. It's a way of saying, you're an excellent cook, this food is delicious. In China, don't eat the whole thing. In China, it's an insult if you eat the whole thing. If you eat the whole thing, it says, you are not generous enough. You didn't give me enough food. Okay, so cultural indicators here. If you just assume, well, there's one way the world works, it works like the way I'm familiar with it, you're missing it. You're missing it. So there's, a, there's some warnings for us there. Let's, let's imagine a contemporary example. What if all of the women at Crossroads, or all of the men, decided before they came on a Sunday morning to remove their wedding rings. You're headed out the door to church, and you see your wife pull off her rings. And you say, hey, honey, why, why are you doing that? And she says, I'm, I'm free in the Lord. 
the Apostle Paul would say, you're free to put those rings right back on, Missy. (laughs) All right? We all know exactly why people take off their wedding rings, and it's not for anything we want in church. This is what Paul is saying. But is that all that Paul is saying here? Is this just a call to cultural etiquette? Is that it? Is there something deeper here, something we might be missing? This sort of sounds a little bit more like Ann Landers than it does the Apostle Paul. Why is this such a big deal? And why are there angels involved in verse 10? That little phrase just played with me for a week. Like, what? Angels? Why should they do this? And because of the angels. Like, what is that? Well, that question moves us from cultural background to theological background. You ready to go deep? Here we go. Paul is calling us to hold on to two emphases that our world wants to tear apart. What God has joined together, the world wants to separate. Paul emphasizes distinction and equality. Distinction and equality. And I'd like to, for us to think about it with this mathematical formula. This is the math part of the sermon, okay? Distinction plus equality equals Trinitarian vitality. What does that mean? Or spending the sermon thinking about that. Distinction with equality leads to Trinitarian vitality. Why is this so important? It's because we're image bearers of the triune God. This is going to get theological. Let me start with something we're all uber familiar with, okay? Remember recess in elementary school? I do. I think about it maybe too much. I love recess. And so there were, um, people would be playing games. Kids would be playing games. You'd have one group of people playing tag or freeze tag, another group of people playing kickball. I, I was kind of a kickball guy. Uh, and then there was a group of people, uh, this was true at my school, that um, played house. They, they would play house. And like, well, this is your role. And this is sort of a, a, just a real basic human impulse. Little girls like to line up their dolls and pretend to be the mommy. Little boys like to build a treehouse and defend it from attacking orcs. <laughs> That's true. A little girl cries when somebody knocks over all of her dolls. A little boy gets mad when someone says his treehouse isn't as cool as Swiss Family Robinson. That's because that's not how you play house. You're, pl- you're not playing by the rules. You're not doing it right, okay? Do you know that feeling? Do you know that feeling of you're doing it wrong, you're not playing by the rules? Grab that feeling because that's what Paul feels. That's what God feels. We are made in God's image, so the way we act and the way we live, take a deep breath, the way we act and the way we live, we are playing Trinity. We're playing Trinity. It's a little game that we're playing, except it's our entire lives. We are playing Trinity. We're reflecting who God is. We're reflecting the way he acts. We're playing Trinity. Here comes 120 seconds of theology that you need. Dial in with me. 120 seconds, you can do it. The Trinity is the way that the church has understood the glorious reality that there's one God who exists in three distinct and equal persons. This is the deepest mystery imaginable. So if you don't get this, welcome to the club that includes everybody. 
why would we think that we could understand the inner essence of God? Why would we think that we would have that all figured out? We don't, okay? Here's what we know. We only know what he's told us. Here it comes. He's one God in three distinct and equal persons. The Christian view holds that a triune God, three persons, is the greatest possible being. He's way better than a Unitarian God. One God, one person. Unitarian God, which is what Islam believes. It's what um, um, the traditional sort of understanding of the Jewish God would hold. Unitarian modalism God. That's not as good. Not near as good as, the, as a triune God, three in one. Why? Here's why. Um, was God loving before creation? Was God loving before creation? Well, he, he could be if there's three persons. If there's one person, one God, if it's just modalism, if it's just one, he's not loving. Who's he loving? There's nothing else. Oh, what a glorious truth. God is loving in and of himself. So uh, a modalist God, one person, one God, simple, needs you in order to be loving. A needy God is not a good thing. You don't want a needy God, I promise. You don't want a needy God. The triune God of the Bible didn't create you because he needs someone to love. He created you to share in the love that he has. He had a whole bunch extra and it was splashing everywhere and thought that he would make some beings to share in his glorious love of, in the Trinity. Okay, so there's some big thinking. But we have to get that in our head to understand what Paul is rolling out here, okay? Because humans are created in the image of God, we have to emphasize distinction Three, and equality. One, we're playing Trinity. We're playing Trinity. How do we do this? Well, we emphasize the distinction of humanity to display the glorious truth that the persons of the Godhead are distinct. Whenever we treat one part of humanity as identical to another part, we're playing wrong. Whenever we consider the genders Please hear this. Whenever we consider the genders interchangeable, they're the same, they're identical, just switch one out for the other, not really a big deal. Whenever we consider them interchangeable, we're playing wrong. We're living heresy. Here's the truth. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit didn't die on the cross. This is the tri part of triune. Church historians call this heresy modalism. It says that God is like Optimus Prime, the transformer. That he is like, I I warned you that was coming, right? (laughs) That he's got robot mode. He's got truck mode. And so God is like that. He's got like sun mode. He's got like redeemer mode. He kind of like, and then father mode, spirit mode. This is a heresy, and we declare this heresy with our lives when we treat genders or, or the, any part of humanity as interchangeable. We're betraying our role, our job of representing the image of God. We're supposed to represent the image of God. That's why God made Adam and Eve in the garden. Male and female, he created them. Let us make man in our own image. Male and female, he created them to reflect his image. 
As we emphasize distinction. We display the truth that God is distinct, three persons. Also, over here on this side, we emphasize the equality of humanity to display the glorious truth that the persons of the Godhead are equal to each other. Homoousius, it is a Latin word that means they're the same. It means that God that is not better than Jesus. The Holy Spirit is not greater than the Father. They're equal to each other. Whenever we treat one part of humanity as inferior to another, we're lying about what God said. Whenever we treat one race as inferior to another, whenever we treat one gender as inferior to the other, we're living heresy. Our racist actions say Jesus is not as good as the Father. Our sexist activities declare the Holy Spirit's nice, but he's not fully God. That's heresy. We're missing the yun part of triune. Church historians call this heresy Arianism. And by declaring this heresy with our lives, we're betraying our role of representing the image of God. That's what our job is. We're playing Trinity. So in this section of Scripture, this first part of 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is concerned about a lack of distinction between men and women. Remember, distinction with equality leads to triune vitality. Do a bit of algebra with me. Let me can discover this. If you've got equality without distinction, that leads to flat uniformity. If all you have is equality without distinction, flat uniformity, modalism, optimus prime. One thing just changes shapes a bit to go into different modes. The covering in the Corinthian culture represented a wife's submission to her husband. But please, let's be clear. Paul is not that concerned about what's happening on top of her head as much as he's, thinking, he's concerned about what's going on inside of her head. Paul wants to assure, ensure that no woman would reject her femininity under God and her submission under her husband. Neil Martin told us in his sermon on Ephesians 5, which was fantastic, that submission in marriage is practice for heaven, he said. Neil wrote, I mean preached. In heaven, we will live in perfect submission to God. We'll lay down our interests at each other's feet. And God wants us to get ready for that. Maybe this is why the angels are watching. Here's my best guess. What's with the angels? I think it's because the angels are the most submissive beings in the universe. They live in complete, perfect, immediate submission to God. God has a desire or a whim. Angels, they just, they're on it right away. And I think they're scandalized when believers throw off submission. When a woman displays a rejection of God's pattern by what she wears, that's a big deal. When a man displays a rejection of God's pattern, that's a big deal. Paul wants to ensure that no man would reject his masculinity under God, his leadership of his home. I can hear myself talking right now. And I recognize that this sounds like so out of step with, what, with everything that we hear. I feel a little bit like Marty McFly. 
from Back to the Future 2, when he like shows up in the future and like his whole life is all like falling apart and he's like the guy from the past. I feel like that. I feel, you know, I just feel like I've just arrived in a time machine from the distant past. Paul just seems like he's from like the distant past. And Paul, don't you know, nobody, nobody thinks that anymore, Paul. What's your problem? We need to hear this though. If you have to be the same to be equal, you're going to have all sorts of problems with Christianity. You're going to have all sorts of problems with Christianity. You're going to have difficulty next week with a sermon on spiritual gifts. When Paul says that God has deliberately created his church in such a way that not everyone is given the same spiritual equipment. Some people are given different gifts. All people are equal at the foot of the cross, but they've been equipped in different ways for different roles. You have to get that. If you have to be the same to be equal, there's going to be problems. But don't, don't fall for the world's perspective here. Because the world values the gifts more than the giver, then it starts to assign value. If you have this gift, then you're better. In, superior. If you have this gift, you're inferior. Mm, Stay-at-home mom, huh? Mm. Well, that's good for some people. Don't make me come over there. (laughs) And you'll be glad that I did instead of her, okay? So, two glorious things are being expressed here. Two glorious things are being expressed here. The woman expresses God's eternal principle of submission to God and husband and her own rule over the rest of creation. Ladies, um, do not feel like a submissive heart to your God or to your husband means that you are second-class citizens or not in, you are called to rule over creation. Adam and Eve were appointed to, to rule and reign over creation. This is one of the, the things that you are called to. You know, I, I know, ladies, you, you don't like to hear Proverbs 31, but here comes some. Strength and dignity are your clothing, okay? She laughs at the time to come. She laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. This is not some wimpy, uh, um, dumbed down version of femininity. As the image of God Women are called to reign over creation. The man expresses God's eternal principle of authority under God and leadership of his home. Wives, you proclaim the gospel to the world when you reflect Christ's submission to the Father. Jesus is not less than the Father. He submits to the Father in everything. You're declaring the gospel. The the world does not get it. You're playing Trinity. Look to Jesus and learn. Submission is not a result of suppressing your true identity or your inner self. It's the glad-hearted, Christ-like giving of yourself for the good of your husband, your home, your faith, your soul. Husbands, your wife's... I'm going to get an amen here. Husbands, your wife's submission is not the result of your superior intellect. Or decision-making ability. Anybody who has ever spent 
two minutes with both halves of the uh, Westerholm couple um, are laughing pretty hard at me right now. We're playing Trinity. Husbands, it's the glad-hearted God the Father-like giving of yourself for the good of your wife, your home, your faith, your soul. Husbands, we proclaim the gospel to the world when we reflect Christ's self-giving and sacrificial authority over your home. So let me just give you a little freedom here. Guys, some of you, all of you, are not as spiritually mature as your wives. I'll just throw that out. Many times, the lady in the home, for whatever reason, has, you know, she's gone through more Beth Moore workbooks than you've ever seen. Okay? She is filled in all those blanks. Oh my goodness. And if it's a little, I'll just, I'll just shoot straight here. As a guy, we like to do things that we're good at. You will very often see me behind a piano. Why? Because I'm pretty good at playing the piano. You will never, ever, ever see me with the hood of a car open looking at it. <laughs> Seems like uh, it's the engine. <laughs> when I kind of ran some of this by my wife, she said, you changed the washer fluid. I did that like six years ago. She still remembers, okay? We like to do stuff that we're good at. We like to do stuff that we're good at. Guys, leading your home spiritually is not a matter of expertise. Being the spiritual leader of your home is not something you do because you're particularly good at it. Don't sit back and let your wife feel the need to pull all of the weight in the home spiritually just because she knows more about the Bible than you do. Try this. Hey, um, kids, sit down. Sit down. Uh, we're going to um, spend some time reading a part of the Bible, and then we're going to like ask some questions and pray together. Shh! Okay. Um, honey, why don't you pick a passage? Do it. Do it. And guys, here's your prayer at the end. Uh, God, we don't know enough about you like we should, and we need you, and I'll step up and say that I need you. Please help us and our whole family. Amen. I'm telling you, you do not need to roll out like, okay, kids, you open up your Bibles. Dad's opening up the Greek here. Oh, if only you could parse that verb. Let me tell you the glory that would descend. Listen, step up and do it. Step up and do it. Christianity leading your home is not an expertise here. You can do this. You can do this. I've got an idea for the artists in our congregation. Let's design some artwork that displays distinction and equality that leads to the glorious reality of Trinitarian vitality. Except here's the thing, it's too late, it's already been done. It's called the covenant of Christian marriage. It's a sacrament. It's a, it's a God-ordained sign of a spiritual reality. Marriage is the covenant between two very different people. And the covenant of marriage and the consummation of that marriage covenant, parents, are you hearing me right now? They display the spiritual reality of distinctives combining in glorious mutual self-giving equality. 
Why is homosexuality wrong? Maybe the main reason is because it betrays our roles as bearers of God's image. Marriage requires a man and a woman to express the distinct nature of the, of the triune God. If we reduce marriage to a social contract between two people who are physically attracted to each other, regardless of their gender, then sex becomes merely a physical exhilaration and an emotional connection, and it exchanges the image of the invisible God for a lie. Heterosexual marriages can lie about the triune God too. When we reduce the covenant to a contract, I know Rod says this so well, I'm just going to take a little stab just to remind you about how well he says this. A covenant is different than a contract. A covenant is an abiding partnership between two people that is self-giving. A contract is different. A contract says, I have needs. You need to adjust yourself to meet them or I'm going somewhere else. I need to buy diapers. Walmart, I'm sorry, Target is on sale. And so I can get my needs met better over there. My needs are more important than this relationship. Walmart, contract. A covenant could not be more different than that. A covenant says, this relationship is more important than my needs. I'll be willing to accommodate myself to meet your needs. I've said it before. I said it. I'll say it again. Sex is a covenant machine. It builds a covenant. In the context of covenant between two gender distinctive, but image of God equal people, sex is a symbol of triune vitality. It is a covenant renewal. So let's remember, distinction with equality leads to triune vitality, but Paul won't let the distinction get separated from equality. Starting in verse 11, he writes, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so now man is born of woman. All things are from God. Don't confuse Trinity, Trinitarian vitality with separate but equal There's nothing separate about this. This is not Plessy versus Ferguson, okay? This is going to become Paul's main point for the remainder of our chapter. Let's look at verse 17. So go a little quicker. In the following instructions, he writes, I do not commend you. (laughs) That's great. Whenever the apostle's like, this next part, you're doing nothing right. Whenever you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. In the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Paul moves from talking about distinctions, emphasizing that, to now talking about equality. Because distinctions minus equality leads to biting prejudice. Distinctions without equality leads to biting prejudice. We're going to investigate that here in in three sort of 
pieces of this discussion of the Lord's Supper. First, Paul writes, the Lord's, the Lord's Supper is a call to love. It is a call to love. If we don't practice equality here, Paul writes in verse 22, you despise the church. You despise the church. I hope you feel the impact of what he's saying. There are people, he says, who come to church, who love being at church. Otherwise, why would they be here? They love the songs. They love the sermons, many of the sermons. And here's Paul's words. They despise the church. How are they doing that? Here's a couple clues from the text. The first clue is aimed at the rich, who it says they're humiliating those who have nothing. The second clue is aimed at the, those who are consumers. They come to church to eat and to drink. They're at the church for their own gain, for their own profit. They see church as a great place to network, to rub shoulders, to gain. Both of these groups, the rich and the consumers, are missing the point of the church. The church is Christ's bride. The, the church is Christ's body. The church is the, is the dwelling place of God. And when we treat it as something less than that, we're despising the church. Next time you hear your kids ask you, why do we have to go to church again? They, they will ask you that. Mine do. Tell them this. We're going there to learn how to love weird people. We're going there to learn how to love weird people and to experience this, that no matter how weird we are, there's a place where we are loved too. To feel the deep equality that the Christian life provides. One of the greatest weeks in the Westerholm family this past week. I was in Kentucky. That was the worst part. My wife sends me a text. Owen wants to become a Christian. I prayed with him this morning. He took his Bible to school. Oh, well, that's awesome. I thought we had done that before. Okay. Wants to take his Bible to school. And let me just tell you, as somebody who has to check his pockets for Legos, when he wants to take something to school, it's going, okay? So we were talking to him about it this week and like, what's changed and what's different? And suddenly he had this, he got all giggly, he got all excited. He's like, mom, you're my mom and my sister. And grandma is my grandma and my sister. Yeah, he's getting it. There's an equality here that the Christian life provides, a unity. So if marriage is the sacrament that displays the distinct role for triune vitality, is there a sacrament, is there, that celebrates the equality, the role of equality in triune vitality? Yes, there is. Let's look, verses 23 to 26. Paul writes, I received from the Lord what I delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread... And drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul's second point, his first point is the Lord's Supper is um, a call to love. Secondly, the Lord's Supper is a proclamation of the gospel. 
How does it do this? Just like a song sticks in your head by combining melody and rhythm and harmony, the Lord's Supper uses sights and smells and tastes to do its work. One author writes, the Lord's Supper wiggles its way into our imaginations. It remembers, helps us remember the person of Christ, verse 24. It helps us treasure the promises of Christ, verse 25. It helps us mourn the death and celebrate the victory of Christ, verse 26. And it helps us recall the future coming of our Lord. Brings us to our third point. The Lord's Supper is a pointer to the future. I'm kind of taking this from the end of verse 26, which is, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So maybe I am Marty McFly this morning. But I'm not Marty McFly from Back to the Future 2. I'm Marty McFly from Back to the Future 1, where he actually went um, back, not to the future. He went to the past. Or whatever. Sorry, the whole franchise confuses me. (laughs) Remember, we're the ones that called it the Last Supper, okay? We're the ones who named it the Last Supper. Jesus never called it the Last Supper. In fact, he was very explicit during his description of it that there was another one coming, okay? A feast, a supper that was coming, a marriage feast for the Lamb. So in a sense... On a morning like this, the entire church is on a time machine. We are celebrating sort of similar to the Israelite worshipers who brought a peace offering to God. And when it was offered at the end of it, the Israelites would sit down with the priests and eat the offering together as a picture of reconciliation. We're together. We're eating a meal together with God. It's a picture of forgiveness and reconciliation. We are picturing the way things really ought to be. And we're a little bit sad that the final feast isn't here yet. Because the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our God and of his son. And he's going to reign forever. Well, we did not have to brainstorm very hard to figure out how to end our service today. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We'll take just a moment or two. Ben, why don't you come on up as I kind of close this off to explain kind of what's going on and who this is for. You're going to see this here. I'll just like get a couple more verses out of the passage. Verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner is guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Examine yourself. I hope you can see why we reserve the Lord's Supper for believers. This is a covenant renewal. And you cannot renew a covenant that you haven't made. So if you have not accepted Christ, if you haven't turned from your sins, repented of them, and looked to Jesus as the only way to be saved and to be right with God, first of all, you could do that right now. You could do it right now. There's no like waiting period before you can renew a covenant. You could join with Christ right now. Turn to him and say, Jesus, I need you. Figured that, should have figured that out even before now, but figured it out now, God. I need you. Turn to him this morning. To, to break into line, 
to take communion without accepting Christ would be, it's, it's worse than like crashing a wedding. It's like showing up at a wedding wearing a white dress and trying to sneak to the front. Okay? It's, it's, it's like that. We are here to celebrate a commitment that we've made to the Lord. And you could do that now. There is no exclusivity here except the one that you've picked. Choose Christ. Find life in him. Now, there's different ways to celebrate the Lord's Supper in different ways, bring different emphasis. We decided this morning we want to emphasize the equality and the togetherness that we have in Christ. So um, just so much thanks to some of the volunteers here at Crossroads. We've got the, um, the cups and the bread there. Could you take the elements back to your seat? And then we'll take them together. I'll have a few more verses to read out of 1 Corinthians. Okay? Let's enter now into a time of the Lord's Supper. You know, as we're preparing our hearts, ushers, come down. We're going to take an offering. So we'll wait for communion just for a moment. Take your place. Take your place.